Welcome to Primarily, the podcast all about the 2020 Democratic primary. Thank you for joining us on the very first Primarily 2020 episode of the year 2019. A very exciting year in the Democratic primary, even though it is also, like last year, a year in which no one will vote in any primary. The first primary, of course, is going to take place in early February of 2020. So this year is going to be a very important year, um, all about consolidating who the candidates are going to be, um, who the early favorites are, who the front runners are, lots of random media speculation about a lot of nonsense. Um, so we will be here for the ride, hopefully trying to cut through some of that nonsense and get down to the nitty gritty of, of what Democrats really stand for and what they um, will be standing for in this election uh, and who will be that flag bearer, bearer for us. Uh, so I don't have any interviews this week on the podcast because we have a lot of territory to cover. So it's just me um, and I want to do a few things this week. First of all, I want to give you some of my podcast promises for 2019. Now, this is not the same thing as a New Year's resolution because I don't really believe in resolutions, but I do think um, it's worth giving you guys a heads up now that I'm uh, about, this is our seventh episode. So now that we're a little bit into uh, the production of the podcast, I thought it was a good time to step back and, and let you know kind of my promises and commitments to, to how I want to run it and what you can expect from me uh, in the in the coming year and, uh, and a bit. Um, I also want to talk about um, some of the news that happened this week, and specifically, I want to dig a little bit into talking about Elizabeth Warren's announcement and what her role in the race is and what her kind of role in the Democratic landscape and in the American political landscape, um, or indeed in the kind of criticism of American uh, of American culture and society is. Um, so there's a lot to cover in that. Um, and, and I also want to touch a little bit on some of the um, really bad job that the media is already doing and covering her specifically and our candidates in general and what that means. Um, so that's two. Third, I want to give you some of my predictions for the year, um, what to be looking out for, what I expect to happen this year, especially now that Democrats have taken over. Um, Nancy Pelosi was sworn in as the leader of the Speaker of the House of Representatives yesterday a big change is happening in American politics. I want to give you a heads up on what, what are some of the things I will be looking out for this year. And then finally, I will play a quick round of the gut check game myself. So without further ado, let's dig into it. It's a busy week at the beginning of a busy year. So first of all, I want to talk to you about some of the promises that I'm making to you, my listeners, and also to myself as a podcast host. Um, there are five promises and commitments that I'm going to try and keep to over the course of of, of the next year and, and two years and, and who knows after that. Uh, the first one is I'm going to try very hard to keep doing it, um, uh, at least a weekly show. Um, I will do more often if they're, if they're needed, but I will try and keep up the weekly pace to the very best of my ability with family and work commitments allowing. Um, you all need to be aware. I hope that uh, you realize I don't do this professionally this is a this is a passion project for me um, so I have to prioritize obviously my family and my and my my work um, but within the confines of what's possible within that I'm gonna try and keep these recordings coming I personally find them really valuable and I hope that you find them really valuable but I find them really valuable just to help me think through what 
I need to be thinking about as the primary gears up and and what American politics looks like now. Um, I also do some media work for the Democratic Party. So having this outlet for thinking through my own thoughts is really helpful for me. But when I prepare to do any television or radio that that, that I'm sometimes called upon to do. Um, so I will commit, number one, to keep 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 doing it to the best of my ability. Number two, um, I'm going to do my best to keep it honest as well. Um, I do not currently have a candidate that I am supporting in this race. I have predilections one way or the other, but I do not have a candidate. I am openly in the market for a candidate. So pitch me by all means. If there is somebody that you think is fantastic, I would love to hear about them. I would love to hear your reasons why. Um, If you want to point me in the direction of some great writing or some fantastic other podcasts about specific candidates or about issues that you'd like us to address, please let me know. And I will always be honest about it. Um, If I'm unhappy with a candidate or if I'm unhappy with what the Democratic Party is doing within, you know, the the confines of courtesy and politeness, I'm also going to say so. Um, I'm not going to be going to be hostile because that's not the purpose of this, but I will be I will be honest if I'm if I have concerns or problems. But number three, bearing all of that in mind, um, my third promise to you is I I really want to keep this constructive. And constructive means honest, but in the interests of moving forward. You don't have to, you don't need to hear every frustration that I've ever had um, uh, with the party or with any individual candidate. Um, What I'm trying to do here is help you and help me to think through what we need to know as we, as we move towards a process of trying to certainly get rid of Donald Trump, but in the bigger picture, make America a better country, make our politics better politics. And if if a criticism or a concern that I have is not in the service of that, or if I don't have anything constructive to advise you towards, I'm just not going to dwell on it. I will note it. Um, I will perhaps mention it. I will seek answers where I can, but I really want us to be thinking in terms of how can we move forward. I'm not interested in dwelling on the past. I'm not interested in being flagrantly critical. This is not a vanity project for me. I'm not interested in getting famous. I'm, I'm actually trying to save the nation. So um, this is not a place for me to be sounding off and it's not a place for you to be sounding off either. I would like to hear your views and I hope you will, you will share them with me, but I hope we will all approach this in the spirit of being constructive. If there's something that upsets you or bothers you, please tell us what you'd like to happen instead. That, that Let's always try and be honestly constructive. Um, and if I do get the balance wrong, if you feel like I'm being um, too panglossian, uh, panglossian is a fantastic word, which means if I'm if I'm making things sound better than they are, if I'm being too Pollyanna-ish, let me know. And equally, if you think I've I've devolved into being too grumpy and critical, let me know that too. Um, I'm 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 happy to be corrected. My fourth promise for you, um, I'm gonna. I'm going to say it as keep mixing it up. Um, so far on the pod, you may have noticed I have I have worked towards trying to keep, for example, a gender balance in my guests pretty good. Um, so far, we've had, I think, three female guests to two male guests. Um, I want to hear from all types of people. I want to hear from men and women. I desperately want to hear from from people from different uh, minority groups and and. Um, 
less represented groups, um, not necessarily just ethnic, ethnically minority, but also, for example, last week we heard from, from um, you know, Christian left faith groups. I'm interested in hearing alternative points of view who don't have a lot of opportunities to be spoke to be outspoken in other media formats. And, and I'm really interested in the conversation. I want to understand where people are coming from. Um, and so when I hear minorities, I'm not when I want to hear from minorities, I don't necessarily just want to hear from minority people on things that are considered to be quote unquote minority issues. Everybody has views on a wide range of things. So I want to hear from women about things that are not just women's issues, um, as if everything wasn't a women's issue. I want to hear from uh, people of different races and ethnicities about foreign policy, as well as about sort of discriminatory policies. So um, I want to hear from everybody about a lot of different things. Um, So having said that, um, I'm not interested in hearing from um, in light of what I said in the previous one, I'm not listed, uh, willing to hear from people whose primary function in talking about the party is to criticize it. If you don't, if you're not sincerely committed to trying to help us find a better president for the United States of America, then this is probably not the podcast for you. Um, go, go, go talk on one of the many thousands of other excellent podcasts out there. Um, and, and that's, that's the place for you to have your say. Um, and finally, and so far I've been talking about promises that I'm making to you as listeners. Um, I also have to tell you about the commitment that I'm making to myself, which is to keep it under control. Um, this is a promise to me not to let podcasting get out of hand. Um, right now, I am not monetizing my podcast. I'm not using any advertising. Um, I'm keeping my costs as low as possible. So far, the total outlay for this podcast has been the price of buying a slightly more professional microphone. So hopefully, the sound quality has been a little better. Um, I am willing to invest more as time goes on, and it may be that eventually I move to a non-free platform. Right now, I'm using Anchor because it is a free platform. I might eventually want to take some training classes and learn how to do audio editing better, and I might want to do this, that, and the other. But equally, I'm trying to just make a commitment to myself that um, I will keep it within keep it under control. Um, because, um, I, as much as I care about my listeners, I also want to make sure that I've got the balance right of doing this as well as doing all the other things in my life. Um, you may or may not know, I have a a five, almost six year old daughter. I have a husband, I have a, a brand new job, which is about to start in January. Um, for those who are wondering, I work in the, the marketing and advertising sector. So I work on the agency side. So I'm a communication specialist. Um, I am a strategist and planner. Um, and uh, that has to be my focus. My daughter has to be my focus. My family has to be my focus. Um, this is a sideline or a hobby. Um, and I, I, <laughs> uh, it, it may sound obvious, but uh, I also need you to understand that there may be weeks when I can't broadcast um, if something is going on in my life. But there also, it is also important that you understand that there may be imperfections in the audio. There may be imperfections in the structure of individual podcasts. Um, I am learning and developing as I go, but please bear with me. Um, it's far from perfect. I'm doing this all alone in my upstairs room. So um, I hope you understand that uh, keeping it under control means I won't necessarily be able to produce it to the professional quality that other podcasts can. Um, I hope that what I have to say is interesting enough 
to you that you're willing to tolerate um, all the things that I need to let go because I'm trying to produce something on uh, on on a bit of a shoestring. So anyway, um, those are my promises to you. If you have a 2020 uh, 2019. Uh, resolution or promise that you're making, I would love to hear about it. As always, if you are on the Anchor app, um, on the mobile app, you can leave me a voicemail or you can always write to me on Twitter at KarenJR. Let me know what's what's on your mind. Okay. This week, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren announced that she is exploring, forming an exploratory committee uh, to explore a presidential race. That Typically in this vernacular, that means she's running. She's running for president. Um, there are kind of formal steps that you have to go through, and that is the first critical formal step. Um, recently, we talked about Julian Castro, who has also recently formed an exploratory committee. Um, and immediately when, Warren, when Elizabeth Warren made her announcement, the first thing that happened was everybody instantly dismissed her. Um, not everybody. <laughs> some people, some, some certain voices in the media in particular, instantly um, dismissed her as, oh, well, you know, no, don't think this is going to work. Doesn't really feel like it's Warren's time or what have you. Um, all of that may be, may be true. It may not be true. I mean, we are at the ground zero beginning pre, pre, pre start of the, uh, the primary process. But I, I do want to take a moment and talk about, um, Elizabeth Warren in a slightly different way than how she's been talked about by well, almost everyone else. Um, there is a difference between the candidate themselves, so the person who puts themselves forward to run for office, and the core message that that candidate stands for. Sometimes the person themselves can be very appealing, and they may not actually really have a core message, but they can bring people behind them. Sometimes the person might have a really very, very compelling core message, a, a fundamentally good idea, but they are not the right spokesperson for that idea. Um, some people would say Bernie Sanders, for example, um, who persuaded the party very convincingly that um, eventually he brought a lot of Democrats on board with a $15 minimum wage and um, Medicare for all as policy positions, um, quite quite bold policy positions, actually, the Democrats had been reluctant to adopt. He persuaded a lot of Democrats of that, or at least the Sanders campaign persuaded a lot of people of that. Um, but Sanders himself did not win the support of all those people. So there were people who didn't support Bernie Sanders, but did buy into his policy or his kind of fundamental argument about American life. I want to talk for a minute about what is Elizabeth Warren's fundamental message? Because it strikes me that she has one more clearly than any other candidate who is currently in the race. And I would argue probably more than any other candidate who's who's even considering the race as far as I know so far. I mean, I haven't seen them set forward their agenda. But Elizabeth Warren is somebody whose career I've been following since long before she would have described herself as a politician. And I find her core message very important that we get right and understand and talk about, because I think it is one that um, will will not just live and die with Elizabeth Warren. I think it is it is an important story uh, and a, a fundamentally true story about American life today that um, we as Democrats need to get behind or at least understand um, what it means and, and what it's about. So Elizabeth Warren, before she was a politician, so without judging, without passing judgment on whether she is a right candidate um, for the 2020 election, which I really don't know at this point, I do want to talk about what is the story she's telling about America and American life. I think it's important for us to to 
to nail it down because she's being talked about in a lot of different ways. And I want to make the case for her core issue. Elizabeth Warren started as an academic. She was initially a professor, a law professor, um, and she became very interested in a kind of cluster of ideas around consumer protection, but also more broadly around um, the idea of um, financial malfeasance um, and the kind of fair play um, and the the danger to the middle class that exists when um, big institutions, especially financial institutions, do not play fair um, or do not um, or bend the rules to their favor. She, I actually was reading her work um, long ago, and I first became aware of it when she started writing on a lot of popular blogs that I followed at the time um, about bankruptcy reform. Back during the George W. Bush administration, um, Republicans successfully lobbied to change America's bankruptcy laws, which have historically been quite lax in comparison to other parts of the world, um, to make it harder for people to declare personal bankruptcy and to make them liable for repaying more of their money once they have declared personal bankruptcy. Um, it was a reform that I strongly opposed at the time. And one of the reasons I strongly opposed it was because of some of the research that Elizabeth Warren and her team had done. They had done some really helpful research helping us to pin down the details of who is declaring personal bankruptcy and why. And what she found is that about half, 50% roughly, more or less, of personal bankruptcies in the United States of America at that time and I, I don't know what the current status are, but I think the stats are, but I think it's probably quite similar now, were specifically for one of two causes, either because of a health health crisis, so a heart attack, a broken, broken bone, um, some sort of critical health issue, um, or, you know, the onset of a, of a critical, um, uh, a chronic disease, so some sort of health issue, or because of unemployment, sudden unemployment. So they'd either be, people had either been fired or had a terrible health problem. Two things that are mostly you know, not always. I mean, certainly, um, but fundamentally not of the person's choosing. So I would say it's beyond their control, or at least with a very limited control. Um, and that people were declaring bankruptcy on the basis of this. And the change to the law that was being proposed and that actually was passed was to make it harder for those people to get a clean slate. Now, this is a philosophical point for me because it has always been striking to me that one of the drivers of America's economic success for most of the last century was um, it created these, path, the, these paths out of destitution for Americans. There were second chances. Bankruptcy reform was, bankruptcy laws were laxer in America than in, in European countries. And that allowed more Americans to stay in the middle class or get back into the middle class, even after they'd had a critical issue. So I, I really didn't think it was a good idea for us to mess with that. But that is what happened. The law was changed against Elizabeth Warren's um, objections and in spite of her her research. Um, when Obama was elected, um, she, she, she then carried on writing and, and working and doing more research and thinking, and she had a very good idea. She and some other people on her team, they proposed um, a Consumer Financial Protection Board. And as part of President Obama's um, efforts to overcome the 
the crisis of um, the 2007 basically financial collapse. Um, and shortly after he was elected or after he was installed in 2009, Obama, as part of his package of um, reforms to try and recover and, and cope with the crisis, the financial crisis, one of the things that they passed was um, indeed the creation at, at Elizabeth Warren's urging of the Consumer Financial Protection Board. This was an organization, a government-led organization, whose function was to basically be a watchdog for financial services. Its job was to keep track of um, uh, banks and financial authority, financial services that were um, exploiting effectively uh, consumers to their disadvantage, sometimes in clear violation of the law. And the when this happened, the Consumer Financial Protection Board, rather than waiting for lawsuits to come um, or requiring consumers to even understand what had happened to them, the Consumer Financial Protection Board would aggressively go in and investigate with these issues and then just fine these, uh, these financial services organizations and repay that money directly to consumers. It was very successful in doing this. In fact, they refunded about $12 billion from financial organizations that had been found to be misleading, mis-selling, or um, flat-out lying to consumers or the, or breaking the breaking existing laws um, in the way that they deal with consumers. These these were not changes to the law to necessarily make to, to make the regulations stricter. It was just the government intervening on behalf of the little guy to enforce existing laws and regulations so that people couldn't be screwed out of their life savings by, um, by predatory capitalists in the financial services sector. Um, and I, when I say predatory capitalists, I do not mean that all people in those organizations are bad people. What I mean is exactly what it says. The capitalism in the financial or services organizations were pre were preying upon consumers, not because the people in it were necessarily evil, although some of them may be, but because that was how the system was set up. It was structurally advantageous for them to do so. You get more money back for your shareholders and so forth. And that, it seems to me, is Elizabeth is is kind of a great example of Elizabeth Warren's core argument, is that American capitalism is no longer working to create prosperity for Americans. And we need things like the Consumer Financial Protection Board to intervene on behalf of the citizens of this country to restore um, just fair play and fair dealing. And I think that's a really important fundamental case. The Financial Protection Board is one example of that. Now, Republicans were horrified at the notion of making Elizabeth Warren the head of the Consumer Financial Protection Board. And they used every trick in the book that they had in Congress to prevent her from being approved into her appointment. They were successful at that. Um, so Obama appointed someone else. And because Elizabeth Warren now had nothing else to do with her time and couldn't actually pursue the, the the issue that she was most concerned about directly as the head of a regulatory authority where she felt she could do some good, she then decided to run for Senate. And that is how Elizabeth Warren became a politician. So she didn't, you know, it wasn't because she woke up all her life and every morning woke up and dreamed of becoming president of the United States. In fact, I don't think she ever, and she says this in her announcement video, ever had any intention of running for president or any dream that she might. Um, but she very strongly believes that American capitalism has gone wrong. And, um, and I agree with her. 
um, I think the facts bear out her story. Um, it is true that wages are stagnating. It is true that for the past decade and a half, we have not seen significant rises in working class, middle class wages. Um, it is true that whilst wages are stagnating, the costs to American consumers um, of things that they care about deeply are rising drastically. And in particular, the cost of healthcare and the cost of education have been going up exponentially, outs outpacing the increase in wages um, significantly. So our lives are harder. They cost more. It, it's, it's more expensive to get the basic services that we need for ourselves and our family. Um, and that is not a sustainable way for a country to it is not a sustainable path for a country that wishes to continue to be prosperous and successful. It is it is an undermining of the fundamental um, contract that made America a successful nation after the Second World War. Um, after the Second World War, prosperity amongst, I'm going to be brutal, amongst the white working and middle class was broadly expansive. Um, there, this is not necessarily the case for the, for the working class and middle class minority populations, although, you know, they made some advances, but it was not, it was not equally shared. You can see a, a, almost a flat line of prosperity and wealth generation amongst other minority groups, but in amongst the majority of the, the white working class and middle class population, um, we found roots into expansion of prosperity and we are no longer doing that. That does not mean um, necessarily that we have to revert to democratic socialism. I know that there is a um, movement out there of democratic socialists. I'm interested to hear what they have to say. But I don't think it's as simple as saying, well, socialism is the only way forward because it's not. Capitalism could work better. Um, now, can it absolutely solve the problem? I don't know, but it's not working right now in the way that it's it's meant to. And I would argue that we have allowed capitalism to become predatory because we have taken the role of democracy as a leavener of capitalism away. What I mean by this is the way that I see it, capitalism is a powerful force for the creation of wealth and innovation, and we should use it for that. But the primary purpose of capitalism, as I see it, is not that in itself. It is to create prosperity for the general population. That is my personal point of view. You may differ, but for me, if the function of capitalism is to create prosperity for the people who live under it. And the role of democracy should be, I would argue, to leaven the capitalism, which would which will always tend towards um, capitalism will always tend towards the benefit of the capitalists, of the owners of capital. Um, the prospect of the the function of a democracy, as I see it, is to put in place or to um, make a structural countercurrent to that, so that there are there are there are voters who would advocate for their own best interests against the interests of um, an ever more predatory capitalism. Sometimes this could mean, indeed, that they uh, understand that you know they they that. Voters have to make sacrifices uh, to keep the system running, perhaps. But also, a lot of the time, it means actually, yes, we are going to take some of some tax money from 
the capitalist, the capital, the cap from capitalism, from the wealth created by capitalism to create broader prosperity, to build an education system, to build a highway system, as was done in the 1950s, to build um, a, a healthcare system, as has been done in in most other um, capitalist first world nations. That's just a fundamental contract that I just buy into, and and I think it's just it's just the right approach. Um, you know, as long as we are living in a capitalist nation, then it, that capitalism needs to be leavened by um, systems that countervail the the worst impact, the the worst instincts of um, shareholder um, of shareholder wealth creation um, to drive towards better benefiting society at large. Um, so without belaboring the point, that that's how I see Elizabeth Warren's fundamental argument. And I think it's the fundamental argument of a lot of Democrats and a lot of, uh, a lot of people. It is exactly the opposite of the Republican point of view. The Republican point of view, as clearly is stated time and time again, and as is kind of made manifest by the existence of, of Donald Trump, um, is almost a sort of pure Ayn Randian view of, um, let the little guy fall. You know, you're fired is famously Trump's slogan. He he has no interest in spreading American prosperity to average working people. He is interested in rich people. He's interested in becoming more rich himself. And he's never convincingly persuaded me that he cares about um, the general well-being of, of anyone outside of his own family. Um, but that's that's true of the Republican Party. They They are not pursuing policies that are designed to generate broad spread American prosperity. And they have yet to convince me that they even have that as an aspiration. Um, and that is, that is how they roll. So we, we, we do things differently. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I am not an Elizabeth Warren supporter because she may or may not be the right candidate and she may or may not have the right policies, um, to, to solve the problem that she is talking about. So when I look at our candidates and when I judge them, including Elizabeth Warren, who I'm interested in hearing a lot more from, the way I would propose to you that we should judge her is on how effectively she persuades us that she has the solutions to the problems that she is raising. So first of all, can she persuade people that these problems are serious and need addressing? And secondly, can she credibly provide solutions to those problems that we think are achievable, that we can see a path to getting them done, um, that will work, that will be effective and will be helpful and will share prosperity and um, help us overcome sort of the, 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 the major problems of predatory capitalism. That's how I would judge the success or otherwise of her campaign. I'll tell you how I do not think we should judge the success or otherwise of her campaign. And that is the way that a political story, Politico story um, that was published recently um, suggested that we judge her campaign. Politico famously, um, just in the last few days, received a lot of criticism for posting a story asking the question, is Elizabeth Warren going to suffer the same problem of being unlikable as Hillary Clinton? Well, what? <laughs> it was a, it was a fascinating article to me because Elizabeth Warren and Hillary Clinton, I think you would have to if you were looking at anything other than their gender and their age. If you were not if you were closing your eyes to kind of the physical characteristics of these two people, they have almost nothing in common. 
it's just amazing. Um, Hillary Clinton happens to be a woman and Elizabeth Warren happens to be a woman, but they have very different policy positions. They come from different wings of the party. They express themselves in very different ways. They have different, they have different backgrounds. Um, as I've said, one of them comes from a law, come, comes from an academic background. The other comes from a clear political background. Um, they, they don't think the same. They disagree with each other a lot. It's just like, how hard do you have to work to ask yourself, how is Elizabeth Warren going to overcome the problem of what if she winds up being like Hillary Clinton? It was just an amazing thing um, to read. And the, the, the other thing about the article that I found fascinating was they posited a as a as a kind of premise of this article, the idea that Hillary that Elizabeth Warren is unlikable. So she has this unlikable problem. So what are we going to do about that? They did not, however, find anyone who said she was unlikable. There was no one quoted in the article who said, I think she has this problem. It's nonsense. And if we if we start our conversation about any human being with the question of whether that person is likable, then we're in eighth grade bullying territory. Let's never go back there. I don't know about you, but every year of my life is happier for being a little bit further away from being an eighth grade girl. Let's not have the entire media core be a group of eighth grade girls. Surely we can do better. So um, let's do better. I urge the, the men and women of the media to do better. I urge all of us to do better. And uh, so my what are you going to do call out for this week is is please go and have a look. Um, I would urge all of you to do this for all candidates. Go and have a look at ElizabethWarren.com. Look at her actual announcement video. Don't base your judgments of what she's saying on uh, what the media are reporting about her because a lot of it is just absolute nonsense. So go to JulianCastro.com and have a look for have a look at his announcement video. Go to ElizabethWarren.com and look at her announcement video. My my call out to all of you is please look directly at the actual words of the candidates as much as possible. As Democrats, we don't need to filter our views of our candidates through the nonsense that the that the media will come up about them. The men and women of the media do a lot of wonderful work, but they also do a lot of really stupid things. And I think they especially struggle with uh, stupidity when they have a female candidate to work with. So let's not allow them to get away with it. Um, let's, let's, let's look directly at the actual words of our candidates and not judge them on the basis of, of superficial eighth grade nonsense. Okay, enough about that. Um, I will now go on. I want to talk a little bit about my predictions for next year. Okay, it's time for me to get out my crystal ball and predict what's going to happen in 2019. I'll use the power of magic and voodoo. Looking ahead, I see, I see, I see five things, five things. First of all, in the primary. I predict that we will end the year, end the year 2019, with more than 10 viable Democratic candidates and no clear frontrunner. I predict that that will cause chaos in the media and in the end will be fine, but we'll see. Prediction number two on legislation. Now that the Democrats run the House um, and now that um, there is a slight changing of the gear in terms of who's in the Senate, I predict that we might very well see 
some kind of immigration reform, it's including in particular uh, restoration of protection for for dreamers, passed out of both both houses of Congress this year. I I don't think it would get signed by the president because I don't think he would sign anything related to immigration um, unless it's to stop immigration. But I would not be surprised to find both the House and the Senate are able to agree on some version of comprehensive immigration reform. In terms of congressional investigation, so the other side of, uh, of Congress's work, oversight, and especially in the House, I predict that at least one major new scandal will be uncovered by the House investigative committees, specific not to Russia, but to Trump's businesses. I feel like there are a lot of un- undercovered, although not uncovered, undercovered corruption stories coming out of specifically Trump's financial and business interests, um, in particular related to conflicts of interest. And now that we have investigative powers in the House, um, I think this will be a really fruitful area for Nancy Pelosi's team to focus. So I would not be at all surprised if we see coming out of these some of these committees some, some real investigative chops specific to Trump's business interests. Um, in terms of what's happening at a state level, prediction, um, I would bet, I would expect to see at least one state this year will expand Medicaid. Um, under Obamacare, the states were given the option of opting out of receiving federal Medicaid matching funds, and a lot of Republican states chose to do so. But actually, we are starting to slowly see creeping, creeping, creeping more and more states um, by one means or another, either by legislative imprimatur or because governors are agreeing to it or changing their minds or because Democrats are being elected governor. I would not be surprised if we saw at least one state expand Medicaid this year. And finally, the big one that you've probably all been waiting for on the Mueller investigation. I'm going to go ahead and put my money on it. I think no one will be particularly surprised by this prediction, which is remarkable in itself. But I would predict that in 2019, someone personally close to Trump, that means a family member, a close, someone closely associated with him, or Trump himself will in fact receive an indictment. A lot of people say, um, or at least uh, Justice Department memos seem to state that Trump can't be indicted. That seems to be the uh, general impression that 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 Mueller himself is is buying into. But I would not be at all surprised. In fact, it is my concrete prediction that someone close to Trump, probably in his family, because he's not close to anyone outside of his family. Um, so one of his children or in-laws uh, will, so Jared Kushner, Ivanka, um, or Donald Trump Jr., who's clearly in a lot of um, legal jeopardy, or you know, as an outside as an outside dark horse runner, who knows? Eric gets up to all kinds of nonsense. Someone in that group, I would not be surprised to see receive an indictment or um, or, or serious legal jeopardy this year. That's my prediction. Let me know if you if you have different predictions. If you agree, if you disagree, or if I missed out something important, then by all means, let me know. Okay, thank you for staying with me throughout this podcast when it's just the sound of my voice and yours. Very intimate, isn't it? 
At last, it's time to play the gut check game. Um, it's just me today, so I'm holding my trusty Red Sox baseball cap above my head so that I can't see. I am picking a name out of my hat. Now, for those of you not familiar with the podcast, what happens here is that I pick at random the name of a Democratic nominee and check my reactions, how I would feel if that person were the nominee. And the name that has come out of my hat is Steve Bullock, Montana governor. Well, Steve Bullock, I know absolutely nothing about him, but the words Steve Bullock and Montana governor sound really macho. How do I feel about really macho? Well, you know, I like Midwestern, Northern uh, politicians. I think there's there's a lot to be said for that. I have absolutely no idea what he's all about, but he sounds super macho. I guess I should go and learn something about him, but uh, I don't know. Montana. Montana's a beautiful state. We don't have a lot of Democrats there, but you know, stuff can happen. All right. I'll pick another one. Give me a name. Trusty Red Sox baseball cap. Who have I got? Okay. Ah, oh, I've picked I've picked a new entry for this week. I literally just put this name in the Red Sox baseball cap because I did not previously know that this person was considering running, but Jay Inslee, Washington governor. Now, I do know something about him because I just read some stories this week about him um, because he just stepped forward uh, to say that he's serious about considering a run. And I know that the way in which he's considering running is uh, with very much a focus on climate, um, climate change and uh, environmental policy, which is completely appropriate for a Washington state governor. Um, so the Pacific Northwest, very crunchy granola up there, um, beautiful, beautiful forests. Shout out to my brother and his family living in Oregon on a farm. I cannot believe I have relatives who own a farm, but I do. Um, so Jay Inslee, if he is going to be the voice for a kind of Pacific Northwest, save our planet, um, love the trees, protect the forests, protect the climate um, positioning. Um, I, I'm, I'm being kind of snarky about it, but you know, go, more power to him. Why not? Um, I think it is it is true that climate change is becoming a cataclysmic, um, potentially devastating uh, issue that we're all not doing anything about. So I'm all for a president can't presidential candidate making that his central issue. Jay Inslee, is he going to be the guy to do it? I don't know. But if he influences the race, then more power to him. I would love to hear more of that point of view. Power to the Pacific Northwest. Okay. Last one. Uh, gut check reaction against the name. Ah, here's an interesting one. Former Attorney General Eric Holder. Okay, I picked three men this time. It's interesting. I think that's the first time we've done that. Um, so Eric Holder, um, I thought he was a terrific attorney general. Um, I say terrific. I thought he was a good attorney general. Um, I don't feel like 
he feels like a presidential candidate to me, but that's just a gut reaction. I don't know why I feel that way. Um, I think he's an impressive person um, and has done some really good work. I have to say more recently, I've been really enjoying Eric Holder as a, um, as a, a more of a campaigner and an advocate. He's done some really good work during the midterm um, on, on voter kind of voter protection and uh, trying to expand the vote and helping voter registration efforts. And um, so yeah, I think, you know, power to him for that. Do I think he's going to run? I guess, you know what? I guess my criticism, not criticism, my concern would be that he's never, to my knowledge, although the internet can tell me that I'm wrong, he's never, to my knowledge, run for elected office before. And I just really worry about first-time presidential candidates who have never been through an election before. I worry about it in a couple of ways. First of all, um, I worry about it from a can he campaign point of view. Um, it's, it's, there's more to being the candidate than I think most people appreciate. I've never been the candidate myself, but as somebody who's worked on campaigns, I know that the, the, the role of a campaign staffer or organizer or, or even a, a cabinet staff, um, post-election as, as Eric Holder was, is extremely different than the job of the candidate who requires extraordinary emotional balance to do so. So I think that's challenging for people who have never been through an election before. And then I also think that, um, you know, Trump, Trump, one of my big concerns when he was elected was that he's never been beholden to a constituency before. And I think generally it's a good idea to have somebody in power at the national level um, who is understands the dynamic of what it feels like to have a constituency whose interests you need to meet and have competing constituencies whose interests you need to meet. It's just a good experience. Um, Trump, Trump is the most extreme possible example of why that's the case. Um, but in general, I think it's just a good idea to have that specific kind of experience that you, you know how to make hard choices between um, differing groups of constituents that you, that you all need to represent. Um, so that's kind of my instinct on that. So three interesting names this week uh, for the gut check game. And that's it for this week. But before I go, I just want to give a special shout out to my cousin, Trisha, one of my favorite people who told me that her favorite parts of the podcast are when it's just me babbling on to myself. So this podcast is for you because that's all it is. I hope you've enjoyed it. I certainly have enjoyed it. Um, and I will talk to you next week. As always, you can reach me on Twitter at Karen J-R, that's at K-A-R-I-N-J-R. Or if you are listening to this on the Anchor app, you can leave me a voicemail directly in the app. Again, this week, if you um, are out there reading, checking, um, thinking about candidates, please, as I said before, look directly to the candidate's own words. Don't just rely upon going through the media filter. Um, and when you're out there in the world, you know, be kind to yourself. It's uh, it's cold out there. Um, and welcome to, welcome to a world in which Nancy Pelosi is once again Speaker of the House. Happy New Year.